You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, welcome to today's show. I am your host, Kimberly Martin, and this is today, March 27th, 2014, edition of Real People OC. I am always thankful that you join us for this hour, and I hope to bring you stimulating talk radio and discussions that will give you a little bit more about the depth that we have here in Orange County. And I love to share it with you because the people that I get to meet, the Orange County that I know, is a really rich and diverse group of individuals. But probably the most important part of that equation and those people that I meet is they're incredibly hardworking. And so the dedication that they bring to either their jobs or their personal life or their causes that they choose to support is so significant, it really warrants taking that time out to listen to their stories. So I appreciate that you join me on that Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. hour. And um, I'm always I'm always so grateful for the people that show up in my studio to talk talk with me and share with you. So if you tune in regularly, but if you miss a show, we always like to remind you that you are able to podcast our shows uh, in arrears. You can go to KUCI.org and pull down any podcast from any show that you like that has them up there. Uh, We have an incredible archive, so if you're just in the learning mood, you can download um, podcasts all through the night and listen to KUCI Talk Radio. So I encourage you to do so. So a big shout out to the people that support me on this show. I have um, the pleasure of working with some really excellent PR firms and individuals that bring me some interesting people to talk to. And uh, today, one of my good supporters, Linda Press, has brought to me a group of individuals that are working on a program um, for curing a very devastating disease. And we're going to talk about that disease. But what I found so fascinating behind the story was the the way in which they're raising money is really innovative. And I don't know about you, but I listen to TED Talks all the time. I put my kids to bed with a TED Talk at night, and my kids have some pretty interesting and odd facts for little children their ages. (laughs) But some of the most interesting things we're doing in this world is figuring out how to make raising money for nonprofits profitable in a way that entices a whole new group of investors. And in a lot of ways, um, there's different models, and we're just going to learn about just one of them today, and they're calling it venture philanthropy. So with the recent uptick, or you know, the upsets in the marketplace and the economy in general being somewhat the hardest to hit sectors have been nonprofit agencies. And so it's always refreshing to find a team of individuals that have pulled their talents and their creative, um, innovative strategies to keep the money flowing, so to speak, through their causes. Um, that are so near and dear to their hearts. So I'm fascinated by that trend. I wanted to share it with you today. So the individuals that I brought into the studio for that um, is Doug Freeman, who is the man behind the venture philanthropy strategy for the organization Cure Duchesne's. And um, Duchesne's CEO and founder, Deborah Miller, and she's going to share with us her personal journey about um, the Cure Duchesne. And then we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Michael Kelly, the scientific side to this equation. So I welcome to the studio all three of you today. I'll tell a little bit more about each of you as we go along. But first, say a quick hello. Hello. (laughs) Good afternoon. And Dr. Kelly, I want to make sure we have you on the line as well. Are you there? I sure am. Good afternoon, guys. 
Yes. Oh, I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> um, the equipment here is ever-changing, that much I can say. So I am working with a brand-new piece of equipment today, so I'm always impressed when I've managed to uh, patch somebody in just the way they were supposed to be. So, okay, so Deborah Miller, let's talk a little bit about you. You have the personal story here. Really, the drive behind this organization starts from a very difficult place that a couple experiences when something happens to their child. Can you talk to us about Cure Duchesne and how it came about? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having us um, this afternoon. So our son, Hawken, was five years old when he was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And we had never heard of the word Duchenne before. Duchenne. <laughs> and um, we were ob obviously devastated when we learned what, what this disease was. We were told that by 10 years old or 12 years old, he wouldn't be able to walk anymore and that we would probably lose him by the time he was 18 years old. So you go from thinking you have this perfectly healthy little kid because um, the boys with Duchenne are usually not diagnosed until they're about three to five years old. So you have plenty of time to fall in love with them, to you know have visions of what their life is going to be. And then all of a sudden, this, this word comes into your life that you've never heard of. And it devastates everything. And it is truly, um, I guess the word heartbreaking would be an understatement. Um, so it was, it was very, very devastating to our family. And... Um, something that we just never expected. Heartbreaking indeed. Um, Dr. Kelly, while you're on the line, can you tell us a little bit about what Duchenne's, it's muscular dystrophy, correct? That's absolutely right. Can you give us a little bit of background? I will do. Uh, Duchenne is a genetic condition that affects muscle. Uh, the disorder is caused by a mutation in a single gene in the human X chromosome, which is why it primarily affects boys. And that gene codes for a protein called dystrophin. The gene and the protein it makes were discovered just over 25 years ago. And we quickly learned that the protein plays a critical and a central role in helping muscles function properly. Without dystrophin, muscle cells become fragile and die. And in a Duchenne patient, the normal muscle repair mechanisms become overwhelmed very quickly with this constant onslaught of muscle cell death and inflammation. And event eventually the lost muscle isn't regenerated. It's replaced by fat and fibrotic tissues. And the result is devastating. The symptoms are apparent before the age of four or five. Progressive weakness continues to the boys will lose ambulation by the age of 10 or 11. And they'll require mechanical ventilation in their mid-teens. And most will succumb to cardiac issues by their mid-20s. Okay. Um, so, well, let's take off from that discussion there. Tell me what it was like in the midst of all of this, Deborah, to start a foundation to solve what you probably were experiencing was an insurmountable problem. Right. So we never really expected to start a nonprofit organization. We, um, both my husband Paul and I, had business backgrounds in sales and marketing, and so we knew that we would be very active in raising money to try and find a cure for this disease. And so we went searching for a nonprofit organization to, to work with. And we really weren't able to find an organization that was focused on, on research for Duchenne specifically. And so we decided to start our own foundation. And that's where we met Doug. And we were told by um, many people that we knew that uh, Doug Freeman was the person to turn to if you're going to start a nonprofit. And so we, we got in touch with Doug, and he heard our story, and he was very um, compassionate about it, but, but at first advised us to find an organization um, to work with because so many nonprofits fail. 
Okay, so Doug, perfect segue for you. Doug is an uh, interesting background with Doug. I uh, was really excited to see the tie into the university here. He's the past chairman of the Board of Trustees for the University of California Irvine Foundation, and he currently chairs the $1 billion campaign that the university is building, right? Maybe you can at some point take a minute to share with us about that. I know people are interested. But um, a, a wealth of experience here in Irvine, you are also the managing director of First Foundation in Irvine. So you come with um, with this many years of experience in working with people for wealth management and uh, really probably working with them to figure out what to do with it all, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Yeah, I've been very blessed, actually, to uh, be at the crossroads of those who've, who've built great wealth and are looking for how to utilize that wealth and with the nonprofits in our community that um, in many cases have enhanced the quality of life of all of us and so the ability to find some marriages between those who've created the wealth and organizations that would could use some of that wealth to advance the the needs of our community the unmet needs of our community it's I've been very lucky to be at that crossroads and when I met when I met Deborah, there's a couple things that that stood out. First was a disease that when get when, when you learn about that disease for for your your son or daughter, you see that as as it's a, it's a death knell. I, I'm going to watch my child die, and and some people would just curl up in a ball, and 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 shrivel away while this is happening to their child. You cannot be around Deborah and shrivel because this woman is a force of nature. And she was so passionate and her husband so passionate about trying to find some solutions to this horrible disease. And it's the kind of a disease that many of us describe as an orphan disease. There's not enough people to motivate private enterprise, the big pharmacies and the big research centers to study it and to find the cures and so it's very difficult for private funders even if they have money to find a source where they can get the research done at a level that needs to be done over a long enough period of time and that was the dilemma that that Deborah and her husband faced now you have consulted over 300 charities throughout the United States is there anything in common that they have that a particular problem that they need to solve that you are able to help them with or do they all have individual problems that are kind of difficult to parse out but you just sort of go hey this is my expertise I know how to do this one part what is how do you focus your efforts for well, these well all nonprofits have very similar issues strong governance is the biggest one I, I need strong governance good boards people who can open up uh, contact in the community who can help us make good business decisions that can help us uh, raise the kind of financial support that we need to stay viable. They, all, all organizations, the University of California Irvine, we're raising a billion dollar uh, for the university so that students can come to this institution so that research can be done, so that faculty can be hired. Every institution has the same needs. The difficulty that you have with a with an organization that is focused on a narrow issue, which is crucial to the lives of a lot of children, but not so many children that most people have ever heard of the disease, 
is they can't get the word out fast enough. It's hard to tell people what it is and to get them motivated to support you. It's a very difficult road that they're on. And that was the road that, that Deborah had to uh, travel over the last decade. De and many would have given up, but she has never done that. Deborah, how, how old is the, is the nonprofit organization? How long ago did you start it? So we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary um, on Saturday, as a matter of fact. And that's about the event that you have coming up. You want to share a few, few um, notes about that? Sure. It's uh, Champions to Cure Duchenne. And every year we honor somebody who has been really important um, within the community and with Cure Duchenne. And this year we're very honored to be honoring Doug Freeman, who was so instrumental in the development of our organization. Uh, we are very blessed that um, he was the one that helped us set up our organization because he was so forward thinking. And back 10 years ago, the word venture philanthropy was kind of a new term. People were just coming to grips with it. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of attorneys and accountants um, really didn't even know that you could do that as a nonprofit. And so Doug was on the forefront of that and helped us um, not only establish our organization, but helped us um, invest in our first venture, venture philanthropy project. Okay, so Doug, talk to us a little bit about that. Venture philanthropy is actually probably a 25-year uh, initiative, much of it uh, stimulated by the dot-com era. And young entrepreneurs, successful, made a lot of money, looking for a way to give back to the community. And they all kept thinking that if we could only bring business principles to philanthropy, we could make philanthropy more effective and drive the results, create a, a bigger impact. The notion that business and philanthropy could reside together was somewhat controversial because philanthropy has a bottom line which is change lives. And for-profit businesses have a bottom line that says make a financial profit. Right. Do those two work together? The answer is they can indeed work together. It's, it's reflected mostly with individuals and private foundations, foundations formed by individuals, because what they are trying to do is to take their personal money and put it to work in philanthropy in a way that drives a more business-organized and successful venture, both in a, what we now call a double bottom line profitable and impactful and that's that's a big deal what was a little unusual 10 years ago was to take a public charity like cure to shame and have them do similar kind of work that individuals and private foundations were doing in fact investing in for-profit businesses for the purpose of driving the research necessary to find the cure for Duchenne. So um, just really quickly, let me bring Dr. Kelly back into the discussion. Um, I guess, how, how has this been impactful for you um, on the research forefront, this, this new financial model? Has it changed the way you've been able to focus your research efforts? Oh, absolutely. It's had an enormous impact. 
One of the philosophies that we've developed on over the last coming years is that the disease is large. It's an orphan disease, but a fairly large representative of an orphan disease. But it's not large enough in which to cure itself. There's not enough money within Duchenne in order really to get all the therapies that we need in order to combat it. And so this initiative that we have and really to attract external funds into it really focuses us on a very much more severe business model, one that we can do the appropriate amount of diligence and bring in external investors who really want to help us attain the goals that we need. So it's really sharpened that focus for us on a, as far as trying to build a pipeline of opportunities. Okay. Uh, and in terms of being a researcher, do you, can you tell when you're setting out your protocol and working towards um, the discovery, are, can you tell when the money is kind of drying up and how that impacts the process versus uh, a, a process that's being fully sustained and supported by a more robust financial model? Yeah, well, th that's actually a very good question. It's, it's one of the ways that we really try and build out our portfolio of products. We try and align the investors with the product from the inception. So as one kicks it off, you're not going out and looking for money halfway through. So it's part of the way that we've looked at uh, projects that are collaborations or ones that we may take on board. So there's milestones in which a project would achieve and then funds would go into a project and there's milestones that it would make in the future in which funds would be returned to the organization. So we try and line it all up the best of business with the best of science and I think that there's how we've managed to focus the, the nature of the venture model. Okay, so 10 years ago when you were called upon Doug, uh, to try this model out. What was it like in the beginning stages? Well, I, I had m much more modest impact than I am given being given credit for. I, I, I really give Deborah and her board and her supporters the bulk of the credit. I just gave them the, the, the strategy. They executed extremely well on it. The whole concept is that if you can develop research which leads to uh, the models, which leads to the protocols, which leads to the drug that can be used in the public, the revenue from those drugs will build the value of whatever company you have just helped to fund. The profit from your investment comes back to you and you then recircle that money back into more investment, more research, more drug funds. You think about it, philanthropy is a terrific source of um, seed money, seed capital, high risk capital. Most financial investors want to be pretty sure they're going to get their return and it needs to be a big return. Philanthropy doesn't need that. What philanthropy needs is innovation and new thinking. And if it just gets the same money back, it's happy because it can then recycle that money again. Whereas a for-profit may want a 20-to-1 return, a nonprofit says, give me my money back so that I can give it back to another research project. It's a very efficient way, and the best forms of of research are coming from private support like this. So it becomes a self-sustaining model that nobody really expected it to be. Usually if somebody's going to give money to a charity, they're giving it from their heart and they say, let's, you know, I've worked hard and I want to share it. But they don't expect it to just do this, be th become this revenue generating. Correct. It's uh, a real process. business. But here's what makes it work.
it's not just a for-profit business for the sake of making a profit. It's a for-profit business for the sake of driving the same research that your mission calls for, the curing of Duchenne. So you're investing in a, a, a therapy, uh, in a drug research, and ultimately in the production of drugs that could lead to the curing of this disease. So if you make a profit, you make a profit to cycle back into that research, and that research just gets better and better and better. So you can see you're not, you're not just investing for the sake of investing. You're, you're investing for the sake of finding the cure. Okay. I want to cycle back in a little minute to the profit part of this because I'm fascinated. But really quickly, I didn't take the time to grab the scope of how many people are, are affected by Duchenne's. So did I say that wrong again? <laughs> Okay, so that's a question for you, Deborah. How many people are affected by this? So Duchenne affects uh, approximately one in every 3,500 boys that are born in the world. That comes out to about 20,000 individuals in the United States and about 300,000 worldwide. And since the life expectancy is only between 18 to 20 years old, you know, you can um, multiply how many that would be if they lived full-term lives. so it's it's one of the larger orphan diseases, um. and and being that it's an orphan disease, it's it's exists all on its own, and there just isn't a lot of maybe other diseases that are f- possibly supporting those efforts. Is that what we're seeing in orphan diseases? Maybe this is a question for you, Doctor Kelly. The the question is, what is an orphan disease? Yes, um, there's slightly different definitions in each country, but in the United States, it's for diseases that affect less than 200,000 people. You know, and as Deborah points out, there's probably about 20,000 patients alone in the United States that suffer from Duchenne. So it's one of the larger orphan diseases. And just to polish off the point, orphan diseases, the, the, the designation was created as part of the Orphan Act in order to invite research and development in orphan diseases because of the small patient populations. It typically wasn't profitable for biotech and pharmaceutical companies to get involved. And the attractions that were put out there were fast-track processes for approvals, smaller clinical trials, tax reimbursements for the investments that were made. And one of the most important was market exclusivity based on, on approval. And after it got away from the need to have, an, have very fine patent estates. And one other thing that people have taken enormous advantages of is the lack of pricing constraints. So when you boil all that together, orphan diseases have become not only very popular, but a real mainstream of small biotech as well as large pharmaceutical companies today. Okay. Um, So I guess when I was thinking of an orphan disease, I had something else in mind, not so much a small population, but a disease that was maybe more contained and couldn't use the research of other diseases to support its efforts. Um, are there any other diseases that are close to Duchenne that, that you use to help support your research and that you can learn from? Yes, there's a number of diseases. It's actually worth stepping back a little bit. We consider ourselves experts because we think about this disease and essentially nothing else. 
and we're guided by a very mature understanding of the disease and its downstream pathophysiology. You know, science has evolved over the past decade to the point where knowledge about the disease isn't limiting the factor in finding a cure. It's essentially about money right now. And because of this, our focus is supporting clinical development of new approaches to treat the disease. And therefore, the majority of our collaborations are with biotechnology companies and pharmaceutical companies. The mission is simple. It's just to help translate the best research into clinical development and onto proof-of-concept studies in patients. Um, over the last uh, 10 years, for example, we've helped advance more than seven research products to clinical development phase, and we've provided the funds that have helped the two most advanced products today, are the product opportunities, in phase two and phase three clinical trials. So from a strategic perspective, we think that there is multiple therapeutic approaches that need to work together in order to find this cure. And so it gives you a sense of how we look at the space. We rely on a tremendous amount of knowledge that's been generated over the last 25 years since the gene was discovered, and particularly over the last 10 years about the processes that actually drive this disease and how to change its course in the clinical setting. Okay, so Dr. Kelly, you're the Chief Scientific Advisor for Cure Duchenne, and um, you're also a senior pharmaceutical executive with more than 25 years of experience in industry giants with, such as Amgen and uh, Wyeth, which is now a part of Pfizer. Can, can you tell me about some of the frustrations you've experienced before, uh, before working with this model, this venture philanthropy model of raising enough money to support the efforts of the science, scientists behind finding cures for diseases? Absolutely, Kimberly. That's actually a very good question. Um, what typically happened in the past and what tends to happen in other organizations that aren't as far-sighted as Cure to Shame is that they raise enough money in any one year in order to pick something that they're going to add that money to to help into development. And what you end up getting is a single shot on goal to see if that their therapeutic actually works in a clinical setting. Whenever we do uh, preclinical work or whenever we're working with academic groups, typically it needs hundreds of thousands of dollars. But in order to advance something and do clinical studies in humans and in patients, it requires multiple millions of dollars. So you can get the sense that in any one organization, you may get one shot at trying to take that dirt dart and hit the bullseye in any one year. What the venture model allows us to do is based on that understanding of the disease that I, I talked to you about a few minutes ago, we want to build a pipeline of opportunities. And it's very much along the lines of what pharmaceuticals and biotechnology companies have been doing for years. You build it with multiple shots on goal. Imagine trying to hit the bullseye if you've got 10 darts in your hand. And that there gives you an ability to de-risk programs against each other so that all the failures aren't on just one. All your hopes aren't built on just one. And as I said before, we need to have not just multiple shots, but attacking multiple mechanisms that are responsible for the real ultimate goal, which is Duchenne and the inflammation and the cell death that goes with it. So the model is important at allowing us to industrialize or scale the process that other, uh, other organizations may use. Okay. Uh, let's go back to you, Doug, and talk a little bit about um, this model. They followed the strategy, and are you seeing other people wanting to use Cure Duchesne as a model that you work with in this, in in your in your work with First Foundation? The answer is the model is successful because it's filled a gap. Let me talk about sort of the three phases, and uh, and Dr. Kelly was really right on when he was describing, there's sort of three aspects, there's, there's three phases. The first is just the basic biological research work that has to be done. Sometimes it's at a genetic level, 
It's certainly a biological uh, research. And basic research is often funded by the federal government and funded by the university's own grant writing. So basic research on the, on the human body and how it's responding and what causes it, very much done at, at the research university level. When you then go to the next phase, which is to test your theories, to have some clinical applications to determine whether or not it's first not harmful and then whether it is actually effective, uh, that's very, very difficult to fund. It's a very high-risk area, partially because of the millions of dollars that it takes to have enough people go through for a long enough period of time to determine if this particular uh, protocol is successful. Once you get to the point where you actually have those kinds of results, the big pharmacies are prepared, in many cases, to manufacture it because now they know it works, they can get approval, and they'll take it to market. So the third phase, which is bringing it to market, and the first phase, which is the basic science necessary to understand what is happening at the body, those two, there are already pretty good solutions for. This midterm, this bridge that has been missing is where venture philanthropy fills the gap. So tell me how it works. I'm swimming with a lot of, you know, questions, but how does that work in that phase? You've got the science, and then how do you raise the money? And, and how do you, more importantly, incentivize the person that will donate the money to do so with this model? What is their, what is that, what is that sustaining portion of it? it it's a very good question, and I'm going to get to that question first, because okay. that really is the key to the whole success. The donors who want to have impact, they want to move the needle. They first want to make sure that you have an organization that has its act together, that has a clear vision, good governance, it's efficient, it's effective. They are looking for organizations they can trust. When they find an organization like Cure de Chien, and they, they learn from Cure de Chien that the way they're approaching it is to invest in these clinical trials and making sure that there's enough resources there to test the protocols, test the theories, and to find the results that are necessary to get both approvals from the regulatory agencies and buy-in from big pharmacy, they are prepared to donate. In many cases, for them, they don't feel it a donation. They, always, they actually call it an investment because they see this, if they're successful, if they're right, high risk as it is, there's a high return, and that return means the money is going to come back and then recycle back into the same research in ways that are broader in new directions in a broader area of, of the illness. So they, they, they buy into this. It's not a one-round, one-trick pony. If we're right, this is going to bring enough profit back to the organization to allow them to do it again and again and again on the same dollar. Okay. So... Back to you, Deborah. You were that organization that had the foresight to be right where people wanted to see the needle, as you said, move, right? Right. So our initial donors were people that we were close to. 
and knew our son and were very, very touched when they heard about the diagnosis. And um, they were very motivated to donate in a way that would have the impact, that would be long lasting. And they were business people, very, very successful business people. And it just made sense for them to put the money into a company where if it was profitable, there would be return back to Kyrgyzstan. And we're happy to say that we were able to successfully fund a project that um, went through an IPO. So there was a return to Kyrgyzstan. And that resulted in a gain for our organization that we're now able to put back into future research. So your focus on the research in the beginning was spot on then, wasn't it? You know, we, we've had a really good advisory board. And we've been very, very fortunate with the um, scientific advisors that we've had. They are the top muscle scientists in the world. They're a very uh, comprehensive group. We've got um, gene therapy specialists, cell therapists, um, specialists. We've got clinicians, venture capital uh, people, and uh, cardiologists. So it's a really well-rounded group of people. So when we went to them years ago and um, showed them the research that we were funding, they did their due diligence, and it was, it was pretty unanimous that this would be the best research to fund. It was a small biotech company in the Netherlands called Presenza. And then a couple of years ago, when we decided to bring on a chief scientific officer, unlike most nonprofit organizations, um, we did not find or we did not um, bring on an academic scientist. We actually did a search and went looking for, you know, who Dr. Mike Kelly is. We wanted um, a CSO that had the biotech and pharmaceutical experience because we knew it wasn't just really um, understanding the science. It was also understanding whether the science could make it into human beings, which is really important. So we've cured the mouse. The mice are doing really, really well. And the next step was to make sure that we had somebody on board who understood all the business aspects of drug development and could walk us through the whole process and get these drugs approved. So interesting. I spent a very small amount of time in the biotech industry where we worked with um, small cap companies that were in maybe first and most likely second round f uh, financing. And I was always so struck by how many of them had gotten to that very critical place where they were, their technology had been developed and they hadn't yet figured out how they were going to get reimbursed for their procedure. And it struck me so odd because it is a very backwards way of thinking. Oh, we've got this great thing. And I think you really touched on where you bridge that gap. And maybe you can comment on this, Dr. Kelly, is that you're taking the science that's almost working in an environment that's very isolated and not really recognizing what's going to happen when you put it to the market. And in a way, you worked backwards. You started out by getting your general knowledge from the marketplace, which you brought, Dr. Kelly, and said, we're going to develop this in a way that is, is ready from the ground up to raise money and also to be market ready. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process? Because I'm interested in that. Absolutely. Um, a large part of success in there is the partners that you keep and making sure that you've identified the right sort of partner to develop both the relationship and the asset. From our point of view, I've, I've described that we've got a real plan on what we want to do, and that their plan has been founded over the last many years on the science that's out there. And we don't sit waiting for proposals to come through the mail. We actually are out. We're proactive. We're, we're meeting with people. We're looking for the most promising targets, the most promising programs, therapeutic agents that we think will impact this disease. And the majority of those are with pharmaceutical and biotech companies, and they're the ones that we interact with. 
it's really important to have an understanding of what the FDA themselves are looking for and what the approval process would look like because that allows you really nice to think about clinical trials, how you power them, the sort of studies that we would do. And it's that collective space when you bring it all together that actually defines, I think, where the strength of Cure to Shane lies. We do extensive due diligence in the same way that any company or any venture company would do due diligence on a, a particular program. We look at the scientific data. We make sure that it's relevant and independently validated in animal models. We look through the intellectual property. And we, we look at this in the same way we would run a venture organization or we would run a biotechnology company. And that's why we can forge such good relationships with the, the drug sponsor companies as well as the FDA. And all of that is a critical component of how we, 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 we've been successful and we are determined to be successful over the next few years. If you think about it, what Dr. Kelly just said is why you find donors investors who are prepared to contribute to an organization like Cure Duchenne because someone at the other end, a Dr. Kelly, has figured out this can work. These have high prob higher probabilities of success as opposed to let's try anything and everything and see what sticks. So somebody is vetting this process in a business manner. That creates a level of confidence and trust. But I underscore the fact that this is high-risk philanthropy. If it were not high-risk, the financial investors would come in early. Financial investors are actually very skittish to go into these areas because they really don't understand a lot of the science. Philanthropy will go where others fear to tread. But they're doing it in a way that the business donor, the business-minded donor, feels this has got a real good shot. This is really addressing the issues that are most interesting to me. Strong governance, clear focus, persistent, and, and consistent. Those are principles that investors like to see in any investment. You know, it strikes me as we're having this discussion that the the individuals that have been raising money for their foundations the old-fashioned way um, by sharing the this the sad story of of the disease or whatever it is they're raising money for might be somewhat terrified by the by the uh, success of this model because it would mean that a lot is going to have to change for them to seek this type of an investor as you call them donors today are looking for metrics that they want to see metrics. How are you going to measure your success? And they want to see that you brought as many business principles to the process as is realistic in a nonprofit environment. They're not the same kind of entities, and you measure success differently. But the more you can demonstrate that you brought business principles to the process, the more confidence you will get uh, in those who want to invest. So yes, I, I don't think they, they have any reason to be traditional philanthropy to be scared. This is multiple ways to achieve the similar results. But it does appeal to an investor that says, I want impact. I want to be able to measure that impact. And I want to know that my dollar has multiple effects. It has multiple uses. Maybe useful the first time in. When it comes back, it could come back twice as large. It'll do it again. That's appealing. 
Very much so. Um, I want to go back to the organization again, Deborah, and talk a little bit about um, what are, what have some of the difficulties been for Kyrgyzstan in this process, this 10 years? So I think Doug would agree probably the biggest challenge that we all have is raising funds for the research. It just takes a lot of money to fund research. Back when we were funding preclinical research and it would take a million to two million dollars for a project, now that we're going into a clinic, we're talking, you know, three, four, five million dollars. And so the numbers get larger and so fundraising becomes an issue, thus the reason why we have to go out and, and find new ways to raise money. And um, we actually have started Kurdishan Ventures, which is a for-profit entity that we have spun off, and it's going to be completely separate from Kurdishan Nonprofit. Kurdishan Ventures will utilize our same um, advisors and expertise and enable investors who actually want to make money to invest in uh, projects that we have vetted and put through our due diligence. Um, I'll tell a, an interesting story. Very soon after we invested in Prosenza years ago, and we were a brand new organization and not real confident with what we were doing, but we'd made the decision for a rather large investment at that time into this, this biotech company. And shortly after that, um, some VC, Venture Capitals, came in and put a substantial amount of money into the company. And my husband and I were talking to the CEO at the time, and we were so excited because we felt that they validated our investment because clearly they were much smarter than we were. And he laughed and he said, um, the reason they put the money in was because you put the money in first. <laughs> and so this tends to be a trend. And in fact, the more that we're talking to VC people, investors really are quite interested in hearing what we have to say about the science because they know that our first and foremost goal is that we want drugs for our kids. We want these things to work. And so do they. And so they're, they're quite interested in following us. And as a result, we spun off this um, Kurdishan Ventures so that we could attract even larger amounts of money for people who you know, probably still want to do good with their money, but they, they would prefer to have a, a return also. Very interested. Are you in a part of that effort, Doug? No, no, I'm not part of the effort. Uh, I commend it. And I've seen this done uh, many times in many different ways. Some organizations actually run their profitable business within the nonprofit. Some set up a separate company, but I'll give you an example of the former. Uh, Homeboy Industries, they're, they're, if you go to LA Airport, for example, you will see a Homeboy Cafe. Uh, the Homeboy uh, Kitchen and Cafe in downtown Los Angeles, it is a profit-making company that uh, is a restaurant and, ca and bakery, and it is all run by former gang members that have gone through enormous rehabilitation, uh, education, and are now being taught these business principles and running successful businesses. When you see that kind of activity, that is a profit-making enterprise that drives the revenues into the nonprofit activities of teaching and motivating and, and training, educating, that's a terrific process. And incredibly hopeful, too, yes. to see the two work so 
so well together. Are you finding that you're attracting a new type of philanthropist or slash investor, as you like to call them, that wasn't there before for um, for these types of, of projects like Kirdishen? This is not your granddaddy's donor. Okay. Right. D- this is this is the cur- this is the 21st century donor, who they tend to be younger, they tend to be more entrepreneurial, uh, they tend to want to have greater impact. They don't write checks. They want to get involved. This is a, a definite trend in philanthropy in general. We're going to see lots more of this kind of activity over the years coming. Okay, that's very exciting. Um, are you seeing um, are you seeing s- many other nonprofits starting to apply the use of venture philanthropy? Oh yes, I'm seeing it not only uh, in the public charity sector, in the private foundation sector as well. The Rockefeller Foundation has a huge initiative in venture philanthropy, as do many other nonprofits, and you'll see such things as uh, uh, microloans. Where you're actually loaning money and you know hundred dollar, couple thousand dollars to individuals both in, here in the United States and elsewhere around the world, and that money is used to start a business. That's a huge new initiative worldwide. Yes, I see a lot of activity here. I think it's going to be the wave of the future for a lot of charities. It, it certainly seems like something has to change because it seems I don't know. I guess as a parent. Deborah, maybe you're best to comment on this, but doesn't it seem like there's just not a great enough sense of urgency out there to come to some conclusions about the origin of some of these diseases and to find cures for them when it's affecting you and you feel like you're really living with a ticking time bomb? Absolutely, and it is a it is a, um, a, a clock that you hear ticking every single day. In a disease like Duchenne, every year you watch your son not able to do things that he was able to do the year before. Um, you know, as, as the boys start getting, <clears throat> excuse me, weaker, uh, they start falling. You never know if that fall is going to result in a broken leg, and that means that will be the last time they ever walk. You don't know if all of a sudden they're going to succumb to cardiac failure unexpectedly. Um, there is such a sense of urgency on the parents' part, and it is frustrating to deal with a system that kind of moves slowly. What's even more frustrating is we actually have drugs that we believe can stop or halt or slow down this disease right now. And just the process of getting it through FDA approval, and um, it's, it is heartbreaking. For my, my son, and there's different mutations within Duchenne that require slightly different variations of the drugs, but there is a drug for my son that is basically available. And he can't have it because it's not um, fitting into the company's strategy yet and has not been approved here by the FDA. And so he is 17 years old, and he doesn't have much longer to walk. So it is very urgent, and it is very heartbreaking. And um, the older that he gets, the more, um, the more sense of urgency I have in, in trying to get these drugs approved here. It is so critical, and I remember such frustrations when I was dealing that short very time in uh, in the biotech industry. Dr. Kelly, you might be best to comment on this because you have the vantage point of coming from the UK. You uh, hold your PhD in organic synthesis from the University of Southampton in the UK. Can you comment on our process here in the United States without getting yourself in trouble? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is actually fairly tough in Europe as well. The FDA certainly has their own rules and guidelines about this. Um, both agencies, both the EMA and the FDA, do converse, and they share quite a bit of information. Uh, they share clinical trial data. Um, the FDA is going through significant change with the Orphan Drug Act and more recently with the FDASI Act that's been passed out of the White House. And I think, you know, we should hopefully expect the agency to be a little bit more aggressive whenever they look at diseases like Duchenne, whenever we now understand so much about them and therapies are going through clinical trials and showing so much uh, promise and potential. Um, it is, I echo Deborah's words, you know, it is incredibly frustrating for us on a daily basis to push everything that we can you know, as far as the science, the collaborations, trying to raise money for it, and at the same time knowing that there's a bottleneck out there. But we're working with the FDA as reasonable sponsors. We're, we're building collaborations with them, and I can tell you from my 20, almost 30 years of experience in the industry, those collaborations do work. I can see that the agency has been reaching out, and I, I, I know that you've, you understand what went on with breakthrough therapy designation, etc., but I think the agency has been reaching out and engaging with the community, and I can only hope in the near future that things will speed up and be faster. Actually, um, let's tell our listeners about the, the breakthrough therapy designation. Okay. It's actually a very good question. Um, breakthrough therapy is, it, it's a Let's define it, first of all. Breakthrough therapy designation is a new part of the law that was... Did we lose him? ...to expedite the development and the review of drugs for serious or life-threatening conditions. The designation allows for more intensive FDA guidance and interactions between the drug company and the agency on the most efficient processes for development programs. So it really engages not just the agency with the drug sponsor, but also with advocacy groups and parents much earlier on. And just to underline that point, I think in this case where we're looking at Duchenne, there is no drug that's been approved for Duchenne. So the amount of knowledge and optics that the FDA have on this disease has been limited. This breakthrough therapy in order to engage drug discovery companies earlier in the process, generally around phase two, allows the FDA to become much more informed about a disease, much more informed about the risk from the parent organizations. So I, I view this as a double benefit, not just for drug sponsors, but also for uh, communities like ours, really to engage the FDA early and get them educated. Okay, good. Well, um, we're drawing down on our hour. We have about five minutes left before we um, we go on to another show here. But I wanna I wanna hear a little bit about your event and welcome any supporters that are interested to contact your organization. Can you tell us about the upcoming anniversary and then how they can get in touch and become a supporter if they're interested? Sure. Um, our event is this coming Saturday, March 29th, at the Balboa Bay Club. It starts at 5.30, and we have um, a celebrity chef, uh, Chef Jamie Gwynn, who's prepared a special menu for the evening. We will have um, a bourbon tasting and Kyrgyzstan after hours, plus a program and lots of really exciting live auction and silent auction items. And it's going to be a really exciting program. And the funds that we will raise there will go towards research to help us fund um, a couple different programs that we're participating in right now. Okay. And um, I know that one of the questions that we had put out here was to talk about some of the achievements that you're most proud of in the organization. Do you want to share some of those with us? Yes, I think mostly it's, it's the model that we created that has enabled us to uh, get a return from an investment early on and be able to put that money back into research. 
And I think also I'm really proud of the fact that we've been ahead of the curve on so many, um, in so many ways. And coming out with Cure to Shin Ventures has enabled us to, again, reach out to funds that previ previously weren't available. Um, right now, our challenge is not so much the science. There is enough science there to make an impactful and meaningful difference in the kids. Our challenge right now is the funding. And we can either take um, research one at a time, but during that process, kids are gonna be dying every single day. And so the more that we can um, run different research projects in parallel, the more lives we'll be able to save. Okay, and why don't you give us your website? Uh, org, and that's spelled C-U-R-E-D-U-C-H-E-N-N-E. CureDuchenne.org. And is there a separate website to get a hold of CureDuchenne Ventures? Um, right now, you can reach it through um, our, our regular website. <clears throat> okay. And um, let's double back a little bit, Doug, and talk some more about um, some ways that others might find an interesting way to participate in venture, um, in venture philanthropy, because I know this is the work that you're doing with First Foundation. Venture philanthropy is a concept that can apply to virtually every form of nonprofit. And so I would just encourage people to be thinking about how can we make our contribution to the nonprofit that we cherish in a way that maximizes its impact and the sustainability of that gift. So if I can develop something that creates a for-profit model in a nonprofit organization, then I create an economic engine to, to help sustain that organization for, for a long time to come. And all of us need to put our thinking caps on as to how to do that. Every organization's a little different. Everyone has its own challenges. Uh, but it is a concept that works and it needs to be thought about. Now, I was a lucky recipient to join the National Philanthropy National Philanthropy Day. Boy, you'd think I'd have that right down by now. But it is a tongue twister nonetheless. Um, how was that day so special for you? You had a big involvement in that. Well, I, I did. It, uh, it, it's a day that I felt we needed to uh, set aside to acknowledge the incredible contributions of our, our donors, our volunteers, our staff, our founders, we live in a very blessed society with all of our trials and tribulations. We have several hundred thousand nonprofit organizations w working every day to enhance the quality of our lives. And I think we owe it to uh, those donors and volunteers and, and, and full-time employees and staff, and founders, uh, a debt of gratitude. And I, I felt we needed a day to acknowledge it. And Ronald Reagan was gracious enough uh, of course, it took me five years to get him to be gracious enough, but after five years, he, he was gracious <laughs> enough to sign legislation to give us that day, and, and I'm very proud. It's now actually in three countries and celebrated all over the United States. Very interesting. So you were instrumental in that part of the uh, process? Yes, I, I actually uh, came up with this crazy concept and then spent five years building a lobbyist group to get it passed through Congress. Fascinating. Sounds like we could do another show with that. But if somebody is listening and they're a nonprofit organization and they want to learn a little bit more about this philanthropy model and how to go about doing it, can they contact you over at First Foundation? Yes, indeed. And what would be the best way to do that? 
uh, go to our website, which is www.ff-inc.com. Uh, so First Foundation is ff-inc.com. And talk to Doug Freeman over there. Dr. Kelly, any final words you want to share with us in the hopeful sense um, on the horizon for Duchenne's? Yes, of course. You know, I think as we start to wrap up, I think that I will leave people with the fact that we certainly live in interesting times. You know, we've seen a phenomenal amount of activity in clinical development, more in more now than over the last decade. And there's a tremendous amount of hope out there that not only are we on the right track, but with the right type of acceleration and a push, we could actually do something very significant over the next few years in this disease that would impact the lives of this generation of boys. Voice certainly something I know everybody would be um, would be very comforted by to hear the efforts of such great people like you, changing the way we're raising money for so many important causes. I have had the pleasure today to be joined by Deborah Miller, the co-founder of Cure Duchenne, and Dr. Michael Kelly, the chief scientific advisor for Cure Duchenne, and Doug Freeman who is a man with many hats, and I have a feeling someday we might get to hear more of them, but uh, UCI's very own, and uh, certainly somebody that we should get to know a little bit more about. So thank you all for coming and sharing with us about uh, Cure Duchenne. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So listen, up next we have Matt Kaplan, and then we have... uh, Matt Kaplan's going to talk to us and then bring Counterspin Radio. And then after that, he will join us again for another delightful half an hour with uh, Planetary Radio. So thank you. Stay tuned. And more from KUCI.